You're listening to Policy Room by SPRF. Hi, thank you for tuning into Policy Room. I'm Neha Satyaprakash and today we're speaking to Professor Avinash Collins. Professor Avinash is an assistant professor at the McCombs School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin. He's also a digital fellow at the Stanford University Digital Economy Lab and the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy. He holds a PhD in Management Sciences from the Sloan School of Management at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Today, we'll be speaking to him regarding his research on the economics of digitization. We're very excited to have you on board. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Neha. Thanks for inviting me to speak about my research. It's our pleasure. And let's dive right in. Um, a central argument that you make in some of your papers is that the real value of the digital economy can be measured accurately by valuing the benefits that people derive from digital goods as opposed to how much they actually pay for it, given that most digital services like, say, Twitter or WhatsApp or even news in some cases, they don't really cost the user anything. And I find that very interesting. But I'm also curious from an economic or a scientific standpoint is as to how you go about actually measuring those benefits. Could you walk us through the methodology or the technique that you use in your research? Yeah, sure, Niha. So uh, before I go into the methodology, maybe I can briefly describe the background for like, you know, why this question is important and why we should study this. So if you look at most of the macroeconomic measures, which we use, you know, every day, you know, by policymakers and journalists, uh, you know, the most common measures we use are, you know, GDP and other measures which we derive from GDP, such as productivity. And then we use, you know, changes in these metrics over time and use them as proxies for changes in well-being. Uh, but it's important to note that, you know, these are measures of production and not well-being. Uh, they don't aim to capture the benefits which we get from various goods. Uh, they try to measure the production side of the economy. Uh, but for most of the 20th century, right, like the goods which we used on a daily basis, like these are goods with positive prices, uh, you know, take, you know, products such as like cars or food, you know, uh, the more you consume those products, you know, the more money you spend in the economy, it would show up in GDP and productivity. Uh, and your well-being also, you know, uh, is correlated with how much you spend on it and it increases as well over time. Uh, but what's different in the digital economy context is, you know, as you were mentioning, most of the digital products which we consume every day, like, you know, search engines and social media platforms, uh, they're free to consumers. Like, you know, you don't directly pay a price to access them. Uh, sometimes there might be advertising revenues for some of these platforms, but like not always. Uh, so in this digital economy context, the relationship between, you know, how much of it gets captured in GDP and productivity and and the benefits which these products, you know, generate to consumers uh, breaks down, you know. So th these two metrics need not be correlated anymore. Uh, and to motivate you, you know, if you look at the share of the information sector, the IT sector as a percentage of the overall economy, uh, in most of the advanced economies, you know, it's at around 4 to 5% for the last 40, 50 years. Uh, so the share of the IT sector, you know, as a whole economy, like it's not changing over time. Okay. Uh, but, you know, all of us would agree, right? All of us would agree that, you know, we uh, spend much more time online. You know, technology plays a much bigger role today than it did 40 years ago. Uh, 
uh, and and you know so so this is this was like the motivating fact behind our research um and so basically in my the methodology which we use you know is instead of looking at the production side of these products uh we go and directly measure the consumer surplus or the consumer welfare which these goods generate uh and as you know from econ 101 right like consumer surplus you know it's defined as basically the value you get from consuming the product minus the price you pay for you know uh purchasing that product and in the context of free digital goods you're not paying anything to like access by that product so we go and directly measure how much value you get from like you know using uh platforms such as facebook or whatsapp or google search um and the way we do that is you know by running lots of uh, large scale online choice experiments uh so all of us already have access to these products so what we do is you know uh because in order to put a price on these products we go and run experiments online you know where we offer people monetary incentives uh let's say you know 10 dollars of cash or or 50 dollars of cash you know uh in exchange for giving up access to like facebook or google or wikipedia or one of these platforms uh so we make these offers online and you know on a large scale to thousands of people uh see if they accept the offer or not uh and these are not just hypothetical survey questions but in some experiments we have actually given out real monetary incentives we monitor okay. you know if people give up these products or not uh so these are like incentive compatible experiments where we offer like you know real cash and see if they give up this product or not and then once you run these experiments on a large scale at different price levels you can estimate demand curves for these products even if they are zero priced uh for example you can see you know at $5 what's the percentage of the population which gives up uh let's say facebook you know uh, and and at $10 and $20 so you have uh prices and quantities you know on both axes you can estimate the demand curve and once you once you have demand curves you know you can go ahead and measure consumer surplus consumer welfare uh and that is a proxy that is a better proxy for the benefits which we get from the digital revolution you know as opposed to looking at production measures that's a wonderful way of thinking about it i think it it ignited a couple of questions in my mind about how much i would pay to give up a certain digital good and i really particularly like the method because there's no question of whether you know people are lying about their preferences or anything because we are actually forced to give up the good so i find that very interesting and i'm also very curious to uh, about its findings also the first question that pops in my into my mind is um do people generally tend to value a certain category of digital goods over the other in um in other words say do people on average value social media platforms over search engines or e-commerce websites what have the trends look like on that end yeah so that's a good question so uh, going into the research agenda like my prior was you know that people really value social media platforms a lot and that is true but when we compare social media and other categories what we find is that the most valued category of digital goods is actually search engines uh you know like platforms such as google and bing uh and the reason is you know it's it's really hard to imagine a life without search engines like you know um search engines are basically the first step online right before you find a website and go elsewhere uh 
in order to discover information. Uh, there is no good substitute out there. If we take away access to search engines, it's really hard to like basically do any kind of yeah. you know knowledge job, you know, like your job and my job. Uh, so search engines, uh, at least in the context of the US and Europe, uh, are the most highly valued category of digital goods. Uh, what we find is that in the US, search engines generate around um, over fifteen dollars to $18,000 of welfare for the median American every year. Uh, so that's like a huge uh, surplus. Uh, part of that welfare could also be, you know, because of your job, you know, uh, right, you, okay. many of us cannot do our jobs if we take search engines away. Uh, but a big chunk of it also comes from like using it for non-work activities as well. And followed by search engines, the next big category is email. You know, email is like also very important. Like you cannot live without an email address. And that was around uh, $8,000 a year. Uh, followed by that, you know, we find that maps are also highly valued at around $3,500. Uh, it's really hard to, you know, uh, navigate your way in a, sure. uh, not just in a new city, but in your current city, like, uh, you know, even sometimes like your everyday commute, like you just rely on the navigation device like Google Maps. Um, and then, you know, on the other end, we have platforms like social media, which generate around uh, four to five hundred dollars of consumer surplus every year uh, and messaging apps like around two hundred dollars in surplus. So, so that is also a big number when you think about it, but it's still an order of magnitude less than search engines and email and maps. Yeah. Right. That is also quite interesting because when I think of digital media, I think of my social media applications more than I think of search engines or Gmail because I've taken them as granted at this point, which would also explain why it yeah. is so highly valued. So, um, and I'm, and I also wanted to know, um, like within social media, this brings me to my next question. Um, what may cause people to value a certain platform over the other? For example, I for one know that I value Instagram over Facebook, but I can't really identify why. So is that an academic explanation for this preference? Yeah, so the social media category is interesting because most of the value which we get from social media platforms comes from uh, network effects, right? Uh, so basically, network effects means that, you know, the more friends you have, the more connections you have on a platform, uh, the more you value that platform. Uh, so depending on the context, right, and, and depending on the country, depending on your uh, age, uh, you know, most of your connections might be on one platform over another platform. And if, you know, you want to be on the social media app where all of your friends are, uh, and you also want to be on the social media app where all of the people you want to follow, including celebrities or whoever, are located, right? Uh, so in this category, like, you know, the network effects play like the strongest role in determining how much you value these platforms. Uh, and a good example of this is WhatsApp, right? Like, uh, take the case of WhatsApp. It's a simple app, you know. Um, once you take away the network, there is nothing else left. In the context of Instagram and Facebook, like you still can follow like pages or like you know follow uh, celebrities. In the context of WhatsApp, it's a purely network-driven product. Uh, all of the value comes from your network, um, and we find that, for example, in the European context, we did an experiment. Uh, so in the US, most people still use SMS. They don't really use WhatsApp, oh, okay. uh, which is surprising, right? Coming from India. And, uh, <laughs> but in many countries in Europe and also 
in India and in many countries in the world, like WhatsApp is the primary communication device in order to stay in touch with your family, but also work uh, colleagues. So what we find is that we did an experiment in Europe where we took away access to WhatsApp. And what we found is that the median uh, uh, like subject in our experiment needed like over 400 euros to give up WhatsApp for a month. Uh, and that's a huge uh, yeah. amount of yeah. money. And this was a real experiment where they actually had to give it up. Uh, so in the Indian context as well, I would expect that, you know, uh, relative to your income level, uh, if someone had to give up WhatsApp, like you really need to like pay them a big chunk compared to what they earn, you know, in order to make them give it up because it's really hard to imagine life without it. Uh, so yeah, so, so for messaging apps and social media uh, apps, like the biggest predictor of value comes from your network size. Uh, yeah. Right. That would also explain why, despite there being so many perfect substitutes to WhatsApp, like um, Signal and Telegram, people are so hesitant to shift because most of that network yes, is already exactly. there. Right. And yeah, that, yes. ex that yeah, helps yeah, me explain yeah. my own behavior. And this also helps, I can't help but wonder how much about how much of my choices are influenced by my sociological background. So do you have any insights on how, you know, these consum consumer surplus values differ across, say, gendered lines or racial lines? Um, could you shed some light on that? Yeah, that's a good question. So in the context of Facebook, we took a deeper dive into like what kinds of people get more value from like Facebook versus others. So what we found is that uh, women value social media platforms like Facebook more than men. Right. So they seem to get more consumer surplus from using them. Uh, and in terms of age, what we find is interestingly, like in the context of Facebook, uh, older people get more value than mm -hmm. younger people. Uh, and at first that was a bit puzzling. And then once we took a deeper dive into the data, what we find is that uh, the older you are, the less you know access to substitutes you have. Like if you're older, like you're only on Facebook, you don't use, you know, you, you don't, uh, you, you're less likely to use like Instagram or TikTok or one of these other platforms. But if you're younger, then you are on multiple different social media platforms and you readily give up access to Facebook and take the other platforms. Uh, so in terms of age, like, you know, uh, it's not a clear relationship. Like for some apps are valued more by older people like mm -hmm. Facebook. Some other apps like Instagram are valued more by younger people. Uh, and we also looked at income levels and what we found is that interestingly, there is no strong relationship with income, uh, both lower income and higher income people <clears throat> seem to get a lot of value. Uh, and there was no significant relationship between what your income level is and how much you value uh, Facebook or other social media platforms. Uh, so, so yeah, so these were some results. Um, we did not look at race yet, uh, but in some ongoing work, we are taking a deeper dive into other uh they're, they're like demographics including uh race yeah all right i'm very curious to know what happens on those lines as well and um coming back to what you had early, earlier mentioned about the gdp as a measure of welfare so i was reading your paper um on gdpb and you essentially argue that as things stand uh the current method to estimate a country's gdp does not accurately account for the welfare contributions as you had said earlier and i found that very interesting when you said that also because in a lot of research or in a lot of economic research at least we simply take gdp numbers as given right we do not 
a lot of it does not critically analyze what goes behind the GDP. And even when there are, say, prominent economists criticizing the methodology that is used to find the GDP, none of it comes from the angle of right, the digital economy as you have researched, right? So um, could you please share some of your key findings on this end? How much are we undervaluing our GDP on this front? Yeah, so uh, I think before I explain that, one thing I wanted to make it clear is that, you know, uh, GDP, I think, at least according to my view, does a really good job at measuring the production side of the economy. Definitely. Uh, so what I'm trying to say, you know, through all of my research, so so the aim is not to replace GDP, like GDP, you know, like it, it's called as one of the greatest invention of the 20th century, like it was, uh, you know, like it's been like, you know, improved and like, you know, people have developed methods to like properly measure various uh, uh, things which go into GDP, like intangibles, like, you know, uh, and it does a really good job at measuring production. And we should continue to, of course, measure the production side of the economy, because at yeah. the end of the day, you yeah. know, that is like very important. Uh, but what I'm trying to say is, you know, in parallel to production metrics, we should also be looking at welfare or well-being metrics. Uh, and that's where my research agenda comes in. Uh, and what we find, for example, is, you know, like, so when we, we develop a new framework, uh, which directly captures the benefits which people get from the digital economy and other types of uh, non-market products, uh, we call that framework as GDPB, where B stands for benefits. Uh, and what we find is that, you know, uh, in the US, for example, uh, the contribution, the welfare contribution of Facebook, once you account for it, that leads to an extra growth in GDPB of around uh, 0.05 to 0.1% every year. Uh, so that is pretty significant, you know, exactly. given that it's just one product, you know, Facebook. Uh, and when you account for all other types of social media platforms and search engines, like that contribution would be even higher. Um, but that's just in the context of US. Um, and uh, uh, in the European context, we also look at WhatsApp and other products. Uh, and what we find is that, for example, WhatsApp uh, in Netherlands, where we did an experiment taking access away from WhatsApp from people, you know, uh, what we find is that once you account for the benefits of WhatsApp, that uh, leads to a, a like a growth in GDPB of around 0.8% per year since WhatsApp was like, uh, you know, created. Mm -hmm. uh, but, it, but again, you know, it's important to note that it's a parallel metric. It's not like an apples to apples Definitely. comparison with Definitely. GDP. Uh, what is more interesting is to look at changes in these metrics over time. So, you know, like look at changes in our GDPB metric over time, uh, you know, and what we find is that, you know, over the past few years, the value which people get from digital goods like WhatsApp and Facebook, it's increasing. Uh, so our GDPB metric, which captures welfare, is also increasing. Um, Again, you know, one critique of this framework could be that, you know, we are gaining in terms of welfare when it comes to digital goods, but we are probably losing welfare when it comes to other types of goods. For example, the more time you spend on social media or instant messaging, you know, uh, the less time you might spend uh, meeting your friends in real life. Correct. So welfare increases in the context of digital goods. It might decrease in the context of like other types mm -hmm. of interactions, like social interactions. So the, you know, it's, so we haven't captured the non-digital side of it, but, you know, like it would be useful to like for a full picture, you know, to look at all of these different aspects. Correct. Yes. That is also a trade-off, I think, that has been going on for a while 
in terms of people always discussing whether the environmental costs of extra infrastructure yeah. are valid. So I think that's also a very interesting um, trade-off to look into. And, um, but my question then is, and I've been trying to think about this for a while, is how do you think your findings on the welfare contributions of digital economy can inform public policy better, given that, as far as I know, at least, not a lot of research on this particular lines have happened. So how do you think this can inform public policy better? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, the fundamental objective of, you know, public policy and, uh, you know, of politicians and of policymakers is to improve the welfare of people, right? Like, yes. and if you cannot, you know, measure something properly, you cannot, like, you know, manage it better, like, uh, like manage it better, right? Okay. So I think these metrics are important for, like, policymakers to keep track of and then see, you know, let's say there is a new policy when it comes to, like, access to broadband internet you know, mm-hmm. and you want to keep track of, let's say, you know, investment in broadband infrastructure, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and see if that leads to improvement in well-being. Uh, so, you know, you would enact that policy and then you would want to measure how much people are better off after they get access to better internet, because now they can access social media and search yeah. engine on all these types of platforms. So, uh, so, so I would say that, you know, uh, those are some of the examples where these metrics are like, first order importance like let's say you're investing money on in a big project you want to see if you improve the lives of people or not and these metrics would help policymakers directly measure the well-being side of the economy right and i think especially in the context of the pandemic where everything has gone digital and like there's more conversation more discourse than ever about the digital economy i feel like having this sort of information could have could at least help us you know prepare better following up on that point exactly like you know uh during the pandemic what we noticed is that different demographics right like got, had you know access to internet in different ways like some regions for example had really bad access to internet oh, okay. which means that you know they were not uh they were not as ready as others in order to like you know let's say switch online overnight uh, and that has major implications for well-being, right? Like because everything shifted online over the yeah, past uh, sure. year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so exactly, yeah, yeah. Right. So, on that note, um, you think, in, from a retrospective lens, was there any way that we could have prepared ourselves for this pandemic? In that, do you think this information, having existed earlier, or you know, at least a decade ago, perhaps, could have helped us prepare ourselves better for this pandemic? Yeah, definitely. So uh, building up on my previous point, you know, like, uh, for example, measuring how much people are better off from these digital goods across different regions, across different demographics, across, you know, different variables like gender and race. Uh, If we had that information, right, like we would have already taken steps before the pandemic happened in terms of like, you know, providing better access to internet, providing better access to broadband, to like 4G and 5G, oh, okay. uh, and making sure that, you know, all these different groups like had, uh, you know, access to like technology uh, at, at the same level so that, you know, that wouldn't show up in, you know, higher inequality after the pandemic, for example. Uh, in the context of schooling, right, like most of the schooling like uh, shifted online, uh, some people, many students like actually did not have access to good internet. Some had better access to internet than others. 
and that shows up in like you know outcomes for like learning and grades and like you know which might have effects like in the long term right uh, so if we had all these measures like you know uh, going back a few years and if you were keeping track of them over time policymakers could have like you know uh, uh, proactively made uh, you know like actions in order to like let's say reduce the inequality in in terms of access to digital technologies right that that makes a lot of sense and i would think intuitively at least that um the implications of such say policy ignorance or you know just that not having that data around would be a lot more magnified for developing countries and i'm also curious how do you think your findings would have differed if your research was focused in a developing country like india like yeah so i i i don't have data from india yeah. yet but i think my prior would be that you know relative to the income levels the welfare people get from digital goods as a percentage of how much uh, money they make would be higher in developing countries and the reason for that is you know irrespective of where you are like if you are in india or in the us or in europe all of us you know have access to the same uh, google search you know have access to the same facebook and same whatsapp like you irrespective of where you are you get access to the same product for free uh in, when you look at platforms like whatsapp the average indian spends more time on these platforms compared to many other countries so someone someone in india has access to all these you know like for example all the videos on youtube uh for free and you know and in some types of settings they even spend more time on these platforms compared to other countries so relative to your income levels i think you know countries like india actually might have a bigger chunk of welfare which they get from digital products uh compared to other countries um and you know one of the big reason for that is in india like internet access has like gone up a lot over the past 10 years especially when it comes to mobile devices right hundreds of millions of people came online over the past few years so if you look at the change in welfare from digital goods you know that would be a big number uh, in a country like india where people went online for the first time uh, and have access to all these same products which people in the us have for free right right that's very interesting and i was also thinking do you think some or like the way that you said that the welfare the percentage of the time that you spent on you know say the digital on digital goods um is higher for developing countries do you think that is perhaps because the substitutes that are available in like developed countries are like not as easily accessible or affordable to people in developing countries yeah 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 no that's a good empirical question i don't have uh, i don't have an answer to that question because i don't know the data uh, but that's a good hypothesis uh I personally am not sure like in the Indian context for example uh part of the reason could be that you know if you take messaging apps right like you, you just have access to probably a much bigger network you know in India compared to like uh, a smaller country in Europe for example uh because your network effects might be stronger uh but you're also right you know it could also be you know due to lack of other substitutes outside you know in the non digital space um uh i don't have the answer to that but that's a good hypothesis yeah right and i'm also curious like um have has the findings of your research been imputed in any policy design so far yeah 
So, I mean, as you know, right, like policy, like having an impact on policy, like takes a lot of time. So, uh, so we, I mean, I've been presenting this research over the past few years at various places, including like IMF, uh, uh, OECD, uh, uh, and also uh, the Bank of England, uh, the Bureau of Economic Analysis in the US. So I've been presenting this research at various places. Uh, in the UK, the Office of National Statistics, uh, which is like basically the National Statistics Agency, they have uh, created a project building up on my research, you know, where they have gone ahead and measured similar things which we did, you know, for Facebook and other social media platforms and search engines. Uh, so they have done a project trying to measure what we did in the in the context of UK. Uh, it, I don't know if they have used the results from that project in actual policy making. Uh, that remains to be seen. Uh, but there are some efforts in the UK and elsewhere where uh, people are replicating some of these methods in their contexts. Um, for these, you know, uh, like yeah, for, that, for that to show up in actual policy, I think might take some time. Uh, but uh, for example, there were some reports uh, in the UK and US when it comes to antitrust regulations, you know, like should we break up Facebook or not? Uh, and, you know, uh, policymakers had to come up with, you know, numbers for how much value these platforms create. And in that context, they have used numbers from my research, looking at like how much people get from Facebook and et cetera. Um, it's hard to, you know, uh, again, attribute, you know, that the results, you know, to what they actually did. Uh, but it's definitely showing up in terms of like, you know, mentions in like various policy reports. Right. And out of curiosity, the um, on the antitrust front, did your numbers um, make the case harder for Facebook? Because I would assume it would, because such welfare, like such a huge amount of welfare generation from a single app would definitely count for something on the antitrust front. So um, do you know of what impact it may have had? Yeah, so uh, I also have some research in that space. So basically, uh, right, like when we when we think about ant antitrust and like, you know, should we break up Facebook or not, the, the main criteria, at least in the US, they look at is to see if, you know, if it's if a particular platform like Facebook, is it causing harm to consumers or not? Uh, and my research puts some dollar numbers on like how much value you get from Facebook. Uh, of course, there are also many other types of harms which are not captured right in these numbers. Mm -hmm. For example, like uh, is social media like making you like, you know, unhappy, you know, or is social media like affecting democracy? Like, you know, there are many big questions around it. And those harms are not captured in these numbers. This is just part of the story, right? It's not the full story. Yeah. Uh, so Definitely, these numbers help you like make a case, uh, but you know, like to to properly account for like you know, uh, uh, should we break up Facebook or not? We should look at the whole picture, right? Right? Like you know, uh, what are the other negative externalities which these platforms might create? Uh, and on net, you know, is it a positive to society or not? Uh, another interesting important point which we need to keep track of is like what is the counterfactual, right? Like if you do break up Facebook. What would happen to welfare? Uh, and in some of my research, what we find is that, you know, like if you break up social media platforms into smaller platforms, uh, that might affect welfare in a negative way. And the reason for that is, you know, once you have multiple platforms, network effects might be strong, uh, weaker as opposed to like, you know, being on one platform and having stronger network effects. Uh, so, so it's not an easy uh, question. And I'm sure policymakers in most mm -hmm. countries will continue to debate this. 
but this research provides like one way of measuring the value you get from products and that might help you know policymakers in making a change yeah. i was just curious on the negative externalities end about how um, do you, is there any existing research that looks into um, you know valuing these negative externalities because um, or do you think your existing methodology or these um, you know massive online experiments do you think those would work as effectively for measuring negative externalities yeah that's a great question so uh, in in my in the context of measuring consumer surplus we you know we stay within the standard neoclassical economic framework you know and we put a dollar amount on how much value you get from these products uh, if you want to measure let's say the true impact of social media on like happiness or well-being uh, you would probably look at other measures right like like surveying people about their happiness levels uh, about their life satisfaction uh, and there is some new research which came out after we published our research. Uh, one paper which was published in the American Economic Review finds that, you know, once you take away access to Facebook, uh, overall, like, uh, well-being uh, in terms of happiness might actually increase a little uh, if you give up access to Facebook. Uh, so while, you know, so what that shows is that, you know, these products might create uh, positive dollar amounts in terms of consumer surplus they might not make you better off in terms of happiness or life satisfaction. So there is definitely that trade-off. Uh, it's similar to like, you know, um, any kind of product, right? Like let's take, uh, you know, let's take like, you know, uh, Coke or Pepsi, right? Like if you drink more of it, you know, it shows up in GDP, it shows up in your consumer surplus. It might not make you healthy. So it might show up negatively in terms of like other outcomes. Uh, so in terms of happiness and well-being, there is some evidence, uh, which was published so far, which shows that social media platforms might may might not increase your happiness levels, uh, but at the same time they do increase your consumer surplus. So our framework still stays within the neoclassical framework and tries to stay in the consumer surplus point of view. Uh, for a full picture, right? Policymakers should look at production measures like GDP. They should also look at consumer surplus estimates from our metrics like GDPB. And of course, they should also look at, you know, others' uh, subjective well-being measures like, you know, happiness and life satisfaction metrics. Uh, so, you know, instead of looking at one number, the goal is to look at a dashboard of metrics. Uh, and my co-author, Eric Brynjolfsson, like makes this point, right? Like uh, when you uh, drive a car, right? Like you have various uh, uh, metrics on the dashboard, right? Like your speed and you have how much fuel left right, and like right. various other things. So. As a policymaker, you should be looking at all of these metrics, you know, and trying to make those trade-offs uh, as opposed to, like, focusing on one number. That is a very interesting analogy. And I think that's something we could all use while making uh, black or white decisions about, you know, anything in life. And um, on a personal note, rather, um, as an academic and um, someone who has worked around worked in this field for a while, um, what um, digital social media platform would you pay the most to um, retain or would you have to be compensated the most to let go of, just out of curiosity? 
Yeah, so so for me, it would be WhatsApp. Uh, you know that that's that's the primary way I basically stay in touch with my family back in India. Uh, and also at the same time, that's the main platform on which I co-author and co- collaborate with other researchers across the world. Uh, so in my case, that would have to be uh, WhatsApp. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure that's the case for a lot of us in Hin- India also. And um, I have no more questions on my end. Would you? Is there anything else interesting about your research that you would like to add, or any um, any comments that you would have for our audience? Uh, yeah, just uh, one last point. I guess I would like to make is you know like you can use these like methods, right? Like measuring consumer surplus, like you can use them not only to measure well-being, but even if let's say in the context of a company, right? Like if you want to measure, like, let's say how well your product is doing and like in terms of impact on your customers, uh, the standard way you would do it, you know, is to run some kind of a net promoter score or like, you know, some survey question. Instead of that, you know, a better metric could be, you know, to use these methods like online choice experiments, like, uh, ask your customers how much compensation they would need, you know, in order to stop using your product. Uh, and such a, a framework can be used also by firms in order to like keep track of how well their product is doing. Uh, so, and that has implications for managers. Um, so that is another angle you could take this work towards. Um, uh, yeah, so, so, so that's all I had to say um, for today, yeah. Right. I think that's a very um, nice concluding note because I will spend a lot of time thinking about how much I will need to be compensated to do any action. I think I'll be making a lot of my life decisions now on with that question. Mm -hmm. And thank you so much for talking to us. It was (laughs) wonderful having you here. Yeah. Thanks, Neha. Thanks for inviting me on the podcast. Thank you for tuning into another episode of Policy Room, produced by the Social and Political Research Foundation. SPRF is a youth-oriented public policy think tank based in New Delhi, working to spark dialogues for a better democracy. Stay tuned for more episodes coming soon.